Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into episode 37 of Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, where we discuss the art of pitching every single week here. We do it with a guy who knows what he's talking about. It's the signing Award winner, the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research maven, James Smythe, and myself. And guys, we kind of lied to our listeners way back when. I think it was like the 10th episode of this podcast where we did our first mailbag and we said, Hey, we'll do this often. Well, it's episode 37. So we're long overdue for a mailbag episode. So uh, David James, hope you guys are having a good long weekend here. We are recording on Memorial day and this is a perfect time to say, Hey, we, we, you know, remember all of those who have served and, and pay the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. So we, we think about you today. We think about you every day, uh, guys, Big weekend in, in baseball, the, the Yankees and the Rays coming off a big series. And David, for you, Sunday night baseball at City Field, the Mets finding a way to win it. I think you could say that about them plenty of times this season. That was exciting at City Field Sunday night. It really was. If you think about it, I mean, the crowd was electric. I mean, the Mets uh, got something going on in Queens, that's for sure. And the, and the people are reacting to it. The whole culture feels different there. So first of all, 37 episodes already. Wow. That's, that's right. We're rolling through. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that, that slapped me in the face a little bit there. Yeah. We're, we, we definitely are getting into it, but uh, it was a heartbreaking loss for the Phillies too. You know, I got a chance to talk to Joe Girardi, my guy before the game, my catcher. And uh, you can, you can tell that, you know, he's feeling it a little bit, although he's steady as a rock, you know, Joe doesn't worry about his job, but you're in Philly, you're on the hot seat. You know that uh, he hears it, but, you know, he, he was well prepared for what, what's coming this way. He, he managed them, the Yankees, obviously. He was fired from the Yankees after a pretty successful year. So he, he's, he's been through the ringer. So he's the right guy to handle the pressure in Philly. But another late loss, you know, and you could just, if you looked at Nick Castellano's face on the bench, you know, he hit a big three-run home run to give him the lead. He's the hero, maybe a signature moment. And then the aftermath of the game, the look on his face, the contrast just told the story. When you talk about Joe Girardi and the pressure that the team's facing, do you do you mean the, the pressure he's facing for potentially his, his job status or just weathering the team through this this rocky start in a really crowded NL East? Because we don't see too many managerial firings in, in during the season anymore, right? Yeah, no, it's it's true, but it's Philadelphia and the media is certainly uh you know, talking about, you know, what's going on there in Philly. And the thing that gets a manager on the hot seat quicker than anything is, is late game losses. Like the Phillies are suffering seemingly right on a regular basis at this point. And nothing is more demoralizing. You know, I've said this before and it bears repeating that, wow, you, you get an offensive night. That team is built around offense and slugging the Phillies from top to bottom should score a bunch of runs. You would think you know, that that's the way they were constructed. Uh, defense is going to be, you know, they knew going in, it was going to be a challenge defensively. It has been Bryce Harper stuck in the DH role. You can't use the DH role and get some, get some uh, relief there and maybe get some defense on the field. So yes, uh, you have to know in the back of your mind when the media is asking you these questions on a daily basis and Philadelphia media is, is, are you worried about your job? And Joe Girardi's like, no, that's not what I'm worried about. And he it's truthful. It's truthful. Joe doesn't worry about his job. That's just how he's made up. But yeah wow just when you get those demoralizing late losses and another one on sunday night that's just a killer and on the back end of a of a sweep too you know they'd lost the first two games of the series they finally had a chance to redeem themselves in the third game and then coughed it up late and that that's a tough one all right we have a lot to get to with all of your questions that you submitted and there are some really good ones james and i are going to kind of read them off to david as we go along here on this episode but we we start off each week with the opener we're not going to change it now, even though it's a mailback episode. David, what do you have for us as we begin episode 37 here? Well, I know we've talked about this before, but just, you know, talking to Buck Showalter before Sunday night's game uh, and Joe Girardi as well. And, and as, I, as I tend to kind of gather information on what they think about the future of the game and the direction, everybody's still talking about the pitch clock. And, you know, we talk about the 25 uh, – you know, percent uh, mark in the season, the holiday Memorial Day weekend, everybody's taking inventory, who's where in the standings, when, you know, what the projections are. Everybody's talking about still like, wow, the, the pitch clock is, is a dynamic change in the minor leagues. And they're at, 
not quite the 25% point in the minor leagues. They start a little bit later or actually this year with the lockout, they're, they're pretty close. So yes, it's going to be dramatic. Chabuck Walter made a point of saying this to me before the game of, I don't think people realize what a dramatic effect this is going to have on the game. Now, you know, we talk about pitch calm this year is kind of pick, pick up the pace a little bit with the pitchers and the electronic signal calling wait till next year. The pitch clock is going to be dramatic. I'm not sure if it's going to be 14 seconds with nobody on base like it is in the minor leagues. And, and I think 19 seconds with runners on base, that's still to kind of be hashed out and negotiated wherever that falls. It's going to be a dramatic impact on the pace of play and that domino effect on down through of pitchers and maximum effort between pitches and taking their time. No, you got to work faster. The batter's going to stay in the box. You know, that, that, that's going to have a residual effect on a lot of different things that, that we, we don't quite realize yet. But, yes, it, it's a big deal coming next year. I guess you could call, like, PitchCon this year the appetizer, and then the, the big one will be the pitch clock coming up. J- James, we were talking about it right before we started recording, like the time of game, specifically with the Yankees, because they, they make note of it on the TV broadcast. feels like – they're, they're getting in their work in, in short order here, but obviously the pitch clock's not in play. There's a combination of what's gone on with the Yankees specifically, but the time of games definitely shrunk, right, in 2021? Yeah, so far this year, the well, we'll go back to last year, the yeah. average time of a nine-inning game in 2021 was three hours and 10 minutes. So far this year, it's down to 3.05. So that's five minutes shorter than last year, and that's with the average number of plate appearances and pitches per game, pitches per plate appearance, all around uh, pretty similar to last year. So that five minutes is, is being made up in time between pitches. And I think, as Aaron Boone has said, other managers have said, uh, pitch com is, uh, is a big part of that. And I think, like you said, with, with the pitch com being the appetizer next year, really uh, throw it into overdrive with, uh, with the pitch clock. In the minor leagues, uh, Jason Stark had a, column about um, some trends around the league this year he noted the pitch clock uh, shortening games in the minor leagues as of the other day 28 minutes shorter than last year the average time of game going from 303 in the minors to 235 with the pitch clock I don't know if it'll be that dramatic if it comes to the big leagues next year but the pace of play is definitely going to be shortened and we've talked about it before but the residual downstream effects that Coney brought up about pitchers not going max effort that could drive more contact in the game and we could have some some residual effects there guys one more item before we open up the mailbag and only bringing it up Dave because you were talking about Buck Showalter here our uh, our our good friend Michael K on the Yankees broadcast this past weekend he brought up the fact that both the Yankees and the Mets are in first place on Memorial Day for the first time since 1988 that's all Terrific. You know, obviously at the, up until this point, that's a good thing, a good place to be in sort of, but David, can you kind of put into perspective how, how little of the season has really been played here? And I'm talking about going back to your days playing. There's still so much to come. Do you have, uh, do you have any examples from your playing career of just how long seasons last? It's a great question, Shaq. I mean, every year we, it seems like we, we get a reminder or need a reminder of that exact point of how long the season is, how the ebbs and flows can swing week to week, month to month, how individual fan bases sort of uh, set their hair on fire because, you know, this player's got to go, this manager's got to go, this team is a wreck. And then you see, you know, uh, last year, the Atlanta Braves with a big second half end up winning the World Series. So, yes, 1988. Uh, the Mets were in first place on this date. So were the Yankees. The Yankees fell out. The Yankees <laughs> didn't make it. The Mets did in 1988. They won the National League East. So, yeah, it, it, there, there's always that, that reminder that, you know what, just hang in there. Joe Girardi's message to the Phillies fan base last night was it will turn. The, the extra caveat this year is the expanded postseason. You know, there's part of the collective bargaining agreement that the number of teams that get in up to 12 this year, that's a big bearing on things. You're not out of it. Uh, trade deadline is going to be at the end of July, first first uh, of August. There's hard to make trades now. It's hard to improve your team unless it's from within right now. So fan base is calling for trades or maneuvers. It's hard. 
organizations aren't focused on trades right now, unless it's just an emergency situation or there's a heist going on. They're more focused on the draft coming up. They're more focused on other things internally. So you kind of got to live with what you got, you know, and if you look at the, the Yankees and some of their, their injuries, you know, it's from within, you got to go down and dig unless there's somebody like a, an outlier, like a Matt Carpenter, right? Somebody uh, like that. That's why the Yankees jumped on, on him because that's the, you're limited in your maneuvering right now. So yes, expanded postseason. It's still early, but yeah, yeah pretty good snapshot though at the court, not the quarter pole as, as, as we we've talked about in the past, but certainly the quarter mark of the season. So yes, uh, stay tuned. Tony, you were 20 and three with a 2-2-2 ERA on that 88 Mets team. So I had to squeeze that in there. Great yeah. season. And for this year, we are not quite 30% in. We hit the quarter mark you know, a few games ago. Teams have played 46, 47, 48 games. That's just a tick below 30%. There's still so much baseball left to be played, even though we've already been going for almost two months. And if you want to just Go back to that 88 season really quick. You talked about the Yankees being in first place and how they didn't make the postseason in 88. It's not like they just narrowly missed it. I think they finished in fourth or, or fifth place yep. and missing the – and I think that was the last time that Billy Martin got fired. They, they made the managerial change in the middle of that downturn. So, yeah, a lot can change with the rest of the schedule coming here in 2022. Okay, time to open up the mailbag. James and I, we're going to read some questions here. David's going to uh, answer them. And we'll just have a, a clean discussion as fans chime in and we'll get the ball rolling. You guys did a terrific job sending in some really insightful questions just about the state of the game, about certain teams, but also pitching as a whole, as a craft. So we want to get to a bunch of them here. All right. First question uh, comes at J rock K rocks 14. This was submitted to toe in the slab and actually had my handle on it too. So I guess that's why it's popping up first here. When you did not have a good bullpen before a game, David, how were you able to put that behind you if you did and be able to adjust once the game began? Ah, the point of maturity. Yes, that, that was when I looked at my career. And there was a point, I think, when I finally made it to the Yankees. I spent six years with the Mets in the early part, 1987, 1988, we just mentioned. And then uh, in the mid-90s, I came to the Yankees. And that's when I realized that how you warmed up in the bullpen didn't matter as much. And I didn't worry about it. As a young pitcher, I really worried about it. I just kept pounding. I'd throw longer bullpens before the games, almost wearing myself out. You know, I got to find this. My slider, my fastball, it's not quite there. And, and just over overridden with anxiety. And that really is something you have to learn on your own. It's, a pitching coach can't teach you that. It's more emotional than anything. This is an emotional IQ as a pitcher. And that's a whole different realm that's hard to quantify. It's hard to put a number on, but it's something you feel. It's like a light bulb effect where, you know what? I'm okay. I don't, I'm just loosening the, the purpose of the bullpen before the game is just to get my arm loose, get my body loose to prepare myself for what's going to happen during the game. Nothing's happening down here. That's going to impact, you know, when a batter steps in the box, which changes everything. Once a batter steps in the box with, with, with a baseball bat, that's when, that's when the thing, that's when the whole thing changes and that's when it counts. So when you realize that, when you understand that as a pitcher and you fully buy in, then you stop worrying about your bullpens before the game, because there's many times when the old cliche is, you know, my man, I felt really great warming up before the game. And then I got on the mound and, and I totally sucked and, and vice versa. You know, there's many examples and pitchers throughout history have talked about this, you know, as David Wells talked about the worst bullpen he ever had in his life was before his perfect game. You know, there's so many stories like that. And that's the point of maturity as a, as a young pitcher. When you finally figure that out, uh, then you have arrived in my mind on how you prepare for a game. Does that happen to everybody? Is it like a rite of passage? I think it does. Yes, it, it certainly does. You know, you know, some learn the lesson earlier than others. But if you wear yourself out before the game, you, wow. You know, and then you get in there and you, you're almost gassed in the first inning. You don't you, learning how to warm up is so important learning what to, what's important, what's not, stay, stay in your lane and understand, you know, that when you get into the game, things can change any to any. There were so many games I pitched where, man, curveball's not there today. I, you know, but by the second or third inning, all of a sudden it shows up. It's there. You don't give up on pitches throughout the game. You, just because you don't have good stuff in the first inning on certain pitches, you bring them along, keep them in your back pocket, keep trying to work them into a game because – by the third time through the order, that's the key. That's when it, when it shows up, when you've got the rough edges worn off, so to speak. And 
a lot of young pitchers aren't given this opportunity in the minor leagues or in the big leagues nowadays because they're taken out of the game. And the data shows you that the third time through the order, a lot of starting pitchers really diminish the familiarity of, of the hitters and the pitchers. It, it really impacts the, um, how well the pitchers do on that third time through the order, that magical you know, trip through the order. To me, that's, that goes right to the heart of, you know what, that curveball in the second inning wasn't there. It's now there for the third time through the order. It gives you a different look. It gives you another weapon to use to get deeper in the games as a starter. And it's kind of a lost art in today's game. All right, we'll take, uh, we'll take the next one. At K McAwesome, Kenneth asks, this is similar to the emotional IQ, I, I think, that you were just talking about, but how does a pitcher stay in and get back into a groove mentally after an ump calls ball four on what should be strike three to end the inning? We got a couple similar questions <laughs> like this around the Garrett Cole, G-Man Choi, uh, ball four, and the uh, subsequent run in, um, in Saturday's game at the trot between the Yankees and the Rays. Yeah, it's very similar to the first answer. You're right, James, but you know, th there's a fine line. There's a balance there. You know, pitchers who pitch with emotion sometimes is a good thing. If you if you dial it back too much and become sort of a zombie on the mound, then you lose that edge. You know, Garrett Cole pitches with an edge. We know it. We've seen him. We've seen him enough to know that when you see that reaction you know, to a called third strike that was missed, did he really get out of his game afterwards? You know, what, how do you, how do you rein that into where emotionally you don't overreact and, and then you, it becomes a distraction to your next pitch. And, you know, I've always said that the best pitchers are the ones that kind of are the best ball players really in general are the ones that have amnesia. You know, that's sort of the mental training that you can just forget about that. Forget about the things that you can't control and just, you know, there's plenty of time after the game. Plenty of time to dissect it after the game, get mad about it, uh, bitch and moan about calls or this or that or run support. You can process that after the game. The trick during the game is just to, to file it, you know, turn the page and, and move on to the next batter. But at the same time, there's different personality types and pitchers to pitch with edges like that pitch with emotion. That's a hard thing. It's a, it's a hard thing not to get overheated in a moment like that. Uh, with, with respect to Gary Cole in that game yesterday, I'm not sure that that happened to him. I know he was upset that, that the call was missed, but it was a borderline call right up at the top of the zone. You know, it certainly was a strike in the K box. Certainly easily could have been called a strike three against a guy, KJ Choi, that, that uh, has kind of uh, given him problems, right? You could see Garrett Cole was really fired up about that at bat. He really wanted KJ Choi yesterday. Almost stared him down in the first at bat when he struck him out. So that was an interesting little dynamic there between pitcher and hitter there that, that have a, a little bit of a history against each other. So for all you developing pitchers, look, you're going to have plenty of time when you rest your head on your pillow to lose sleep over the calls that didn't go your way. But during the moment, get get hyper focused. <laughs> um, all right. Next one from at slow train 22. He'd like to hear a bit more about footwork on the mound, the wind up, the stretch, the pickoffs. He wants to know what goes into choosing one's alignment and how that can be paired up with your arm slot. A lot of it depends on the quality of the mound you're pitching on. You know, in youth baseball and in training nowadays, a lot of pitchers, young pitchers, are throwing off of artificial mounds. You know, sort of the astroturf mounds when, when they're practicing and training. And then when you get on an actual dirt or clay mound, what is the quality of the composition that you're working with? How big is the hole in front of the rubber? To me, that's where it starts. Your starting point, when you're digging out your marks, your holes in front of the rubber, that's your push-off point. That's a key starting point. And then the next one, obviously, is where you land. What is the quality of the composition of the mound where you're landing? Are there big holes there? Who's your opposing pitcher? What holes did he dig out? Are you landing in his hole? Do you have some big donkey, you know, that, that's got a size 13 shoe that dug out a big hole right where you want to land? And if you land half in and out, half, half in and half out of that hole, you're going to roll your ankle or twist and there's no stability. So there's so many variables involved in your alignment, where you land how how you land and and who your opposing pitcher is and how you have to work around sort of sort of a minefield out there uh, especially in amateur ball some of these mounds aren't aren't very high quality so you that's the one thing you have to be able to do is adjust there was there were certain starts in my my career where i had to move to the opposite side of the mound you know i, I like to pitch from both sides generally the first base side because i was slightly closed so if you land slightly closed in your alignment Generally, you want to be if a right-handed pitcher on the first base side because it can free up your hips a little bit. If you're all the way on the third base side of the rubber as a right-handed pitcher and you land across your body, 
then you're kind of fighting gravity. You got to reach way back over here to get the ball over to the outside corner uh, or inside to a lefty. So there's so many layers to this as you peel them back. Um, but the ability to adjust on the mound around those sorts of things, I highly encourage. So I would practice that in between starts. Okay, let me come all the way over to the third base side of the mound and let me throw my pitches there and get a feel for it. Let me switch back to the first base side of the mound and let me get a feel for release points and by alignment there and see how that works. And sometimes that's a great adjustment mechanism during the game too. If you're really struggling, let me, let me, let me switch it up here and give a different look and, and, and be able to do that and have the confidence to do that is one of the keys, I think, in working around the dynamics of just alignment, the mound, how you work. Uh, with the holes, how you work with your alignment. It, it, it's a big deal, especially if you're not used to pitching off of dirt mounds. If all of your training is done off of AstroTurf mounds, uh, that's an underrated facet of what you have to deal with as a pitcher. When you were playing, was there an opposing pitcher who just kind of like laid out a crater on their landing spot that made all the other pitchers pretty mad? Uh, you know, Randy Johnson was that way because he's such a big, such a big dude, right? Big guy, lefty, and you know he he pitched kind of in the middle, but he had a big old, you know, it had to be like a fourteen. I think he was a size fourteen, and it, it, he was tough to work around because he he left like elephant marks on the mound when he pitched. So you really had to work around the big unit out there. And there, there were a lot of pitchers. Some pitchers were diggers. You know, if if uh, you are. Uh, on the road, if you're a visiting pitcher on the road, you, you're the second pitcher to, to see the mound. The starting pitcher at home would go out, and he gets first crack at it. And some guys were just diggers. They dig out huge craters in front of the rubber. And that that really bothered me more than anything, the starting point. It's, it felt like you were throwing uphill. You had to get up and over that, that crater in front of the rubber. And you, the, the thing is, is that most pitchers don't want to take the time to call the grounds crew out. You have the ability to do that, to call the ground screw and fill it back in and, and pound it back down. But then the opposing guy will just dig it back out again. And then you're just slowing down the game and the crowd starts booing you. And so very few pitchers have have the 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 onions to be able to say, hey, time out. Look at this hole. I'm, you know, home plate umpire come out. Hey, ground screw come out. Let's pound this back down. And that, I, you don't see that happen too often. I saw Zach Grinke do that once, and then he laid down and took a nap behind the mound like only Grinke can. So that, <laughs> that was probably the best one I ever saw was Zach Grinke laying down on the mound while the ground screws pounding down the holes in front of the mound. So you got the next one from Braden at Fasto Jetso. Pitchers can tip pitches, as we all know, but is the opposite true for batters? Are there signs slash body language from a batter that lets pitchers know that they're expecting a certain kind of pitch? Occasionally, yes. I don't think it's quite as prevalent as, as it used to be, but batters back in the 70s and 80s would move around in the batter's box more. I think hitters today generally kind of stay in the same spot. They want to get all the way back. A lot of them dig out the white line in the back of the batter's box, and they want to be pretty deep in the box and kind of stay there. But the, a lot of hitters would move up in the box and move on the plate a little more back in the day. If you moved up in the batter's box, they're looking for off-speed pitches. You know, somebody who featured a lot of curveballs or a lot of change-ups, you'd want to get closer to him to shorten up the time uh, because the pitch was slower. Generally, when you're deeper in the box, it gives you more time if the pitch is faster. So, uh, you know, really hard thrower. You wouldn't want to be up in the box. So I don't think that's as prevalent anymore. I think it's more about reading the bat. It's more reactionary in terms of how did he swing at that fastball? Was he really late? Uh, did he take a fastball down the middle early in the count? Oh, he's sitting breaking ball. Probably he's looking for something else. So I think that's more what, uh, what I looked for and what, what current pitchers look for is more of how the batter reacts to the, to the pitches. So the, the reading the bat that you hear about certainly is a real thing and, and an art uh, that pitchers pitchers do and catchers as well. So yeah, that's, that's the cat and mouse game between pitcher and hitter. And, and that's what I looked at. I think there's a feedback on every pitch. The hitter gives you feedback. There's feedback first on what the location. I was trying to throw it down and away, and I missed up and in. I know, you know, mechanically what I did wrong. You know, my I flew open. I was a little quick, uh, or my arm was a little fast. If, if conversely, if I threw it in the dirt and to the left, you know, I held onto the ball too long. I knew what my mechanical adjustment was. And secondly, the feedback of the hitter: How did he react to that pitch? And 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 how did he swing at it? And what what am I looking at here? And is he guessing? Is he late? Why change? The old school theory is, is if he shows you something that he, he can't do, why change from it? We saw that in last night's game with Adam Ottavino, maybe outthinking himself, giving up a three-run home run to Nicholas uh, Nick Castellanos. 
one of the best sliders in the game, one of the best fastball hitters in the game. Uh, let me try to throw a fastball by him. He ends up giving a three-run home run. So, yes, those, those sorts of things matter in terms of reading the batter, reading, reading uh, yourself first. And, uh, yes, uh, that it's, it's still a big part of the game, but kind of a lost art too as well. Getting the feedback of the hitter, something that's always stood out to me when I first read it in your book that you did with, with Jack Curry. I uh, hope, by the way, has another book out with, with Paul O'Neill. Congratulations to Jack and Paul for uh, swinging a hit. Yes. Um, but that was definitely one of the things that jumped out at me upon reading it because it was the first time I, I heard someone talk about it. Uh, I did, you know, didn't register. So um, next one's from at James T. Viestra. And this is completely relatable to you, David. Okay. So James uh, has a 16 year old son who pitches and he's, he's six, five, 190 pounds. So right in your wheelhouse here, but he wants to know if you have any tips for a, a 16 year old kid who's six, five, a buck 90. Cause it seems to him that his son's overpowering right now against other kids, his age. Yes. Wow. The, I, I, you know, the, the thing that I recommend to, you know, even though in today's environment, there are a lot of different theories and a lot of different ways to, to train. It's one of the biggest advancements in the game. We tend to talk about sabermetrics or analytics, but the medical data on how to train is probably one of the most significant changes over the last five years. We've seen organizations revamp their whole medical staff, the Yankees included, you know, Steve Donahue still there, the, the old school trainer that rode the buses and ate ketchup sandwiches with all the minor league players coming up through and paid his dues. He's still there, but nowadays it's much more sophisticated with biomechanics and um, injury prevention, velocity training. There's a lot of avenues out there that are, that are interesting to look at. So I would have to say, what is his training? What are his training methods now? Is he using a weighted baseball? Is he using uh, different, uh, uh, tricks of the trade. So they say out there, whether it's a, you know, a body blade, you know, the high vibration training, or uh, as I said, the weighted ball training, I, I, I'd have to evaluate that first to see where he's at. But just uh, to me, some of the old school things you can do, continue to long toss, continue to develop your, your ability to extend. One of the best things he can have at being six, five and that tall is extension. We saw that uh, last night with Zach Wheeler on the Phillies has seven feet, two inches of extension. How close you release the ball to home plate is an advantage for bigger, taller guys. So pay attention to your stride length, pay attention to reaching out. That's why long toss can help you reach out there and develop that extension. One of the underrated facets of pitching and the theory behind it is, is that the closer you can release the ball to home plate, the shorter the distance is, And that, that gives you the, that, that jump, that, that acceleration that, that hitters talk about that, man, that, that just jumped on me. I, I got here quicker than I thought. So the difference between actual velocity and perceived velocity, two different things that can actually be impacted by the extension on your pitches. So at that size, at 16 years old, you hope you keep growing. You hope you keep, keep getting stronger. But think about extension. Think about reaching out there. And, and just an old good old-fashioned long toss program can help with that. Guys, you can slide into stacks of cash this baseball season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets no matter what, win or lose. If you're looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the baseball season, you can do it with DraftKings Same Game Parlays. You create your own parlay. You combine multiple bets like which team's going to win, how many bases will be stolen, total runs in the game. It's your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. And best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB, bet just five bucks, and get $150 in free bets no matter what happens on the field. That's promo code SLAB at DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details and will be trademarks used with permission. Next one from Four Train Savages. How do you think your rhythm on the mound would change, if at all, when using Pitchcom? Would you have to do anything different? You know, yeah, I think the thing is, is there's, you know, we, 
there, there's a pre-shot routine. So, you know, golfers talk about a pre-shot routine. Basketball players talk about shooting on the move. You know, I, I mentioned it last week in last week's episode about Roldis Chapman and how you initiate movement. You know, starting from a static position in every sport is a tricky thing. You know, how, how do you how do you get started? You know, just standing flat-footed, initiating that motion is is a bigger issue than you think it is. So, uh, you know, for for me, I think uh, you, know, the, you know when you think about rhythm and tempo, if you're used to like bending down, getting the sign, and then coming set, yeah, all of a sudden you you got to pay attention to that rhythm because if if you get somebody in your ear giving you the sign or giving you the, the code and you hear fastball down and away and you're just now getting on the rubber and you're like, okay, how do I start this motion? That could, that initial starting mechanism can get thrown off just a little bit. And it's really important more than you think. So yes, you've got to adjust to that and get a rhythm and a sequence going. And when do you push the button? If you're the catcher, wait, wait till I'm on the mound, wait till I've, you know, I'm ready and I'm set now give it to me. And now I can kind of simulate the same thing I've done my whole career and not throw off that, just that initial starting mechanism. You know, golfers, they talk about a press, a forward press, a little forward press before I start my swing. Uh, every sport has that. You name a sport, and whatever, whoever's doing a dynamic athletic motion has a trigger, just something to, to get the sequence of events in, into play. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, that, that is just so important because if you don't have that little checkpoint to begin the motion, then all of a sudden you start to rush your sequence of events, your chain, chain the kinetic chain gets thrown off a little bit. So that, that that's something that uh, it's hard to train for. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to quantify, but it's very real. And yes, yeah, that's something you have to compensate for with, with pitch come. This next one's interesting. It comes from at far Andrew Z. So I think this is a Dodgers fan. Um, he wants to know why is it so much harder to throw a backdoor slider cutter versus a chase slider cutter? A lot of it is alignment, you know, and a lot of it is how you're trained, you know, in order to throw, you know, the, the, the type of, the type of spin you're trying to impart on a baseball to make a break and the spin axis. Now that we measure every pitch now, you know, whether, you know, the Y or the X, the X and Y axis, how the ball spins, the axis of the spin is really important, not just the RPMs and how quickly it spins. When you're getting the axis just to the right point, you know, if you're on a clock, say at 10 o'clock, you want this axis. So you get a two plane break. You want vertical movement and horizontal movement in order to impart that spin with the type of grip and the axis that you get. You want it to spin tightly and go to down and away. If you're a right-handed pitcher, you're trained to like get that tight spin and make it go down and away. If you're trying to backdoor it, it's almost like your alignment. You have to aim over here and you want to start it in a place that you're a little bit unfamiliar with in your release point. It's not the way you're, you're training generally to throw your best breaking stuff. So it really is a, a sort of an alignment and, and where you set your eyes in terms of where you're going to start the pitch because it's not at the glove. Most, most people think maybe if you've never pitched before that, you know, focus on the glove. You hear that in little league games, look at the glove, you know, throw it to the glove. Well, actually I'm, I'm aiming it over here. The glove's <laughs> the last thing I'm thinking about. I'm actually aiming it over his right shoulder, you know, the catcher's right shoulder, or I used to say shin guards, you know, when, when catchers would spread out, I'm like, I'm going to aim for your left shin guard and then break it over the outside corner. So you fixated fixating on where you start the pitch is really important and backdoor pitches generally speaking are a little bit unnatural at first because that's not something that you practice on as a little leaguer or when you first start throwing breaking balls that that's not that that's not the initial objective you, you want to see that big one that breaks down and, and goes down in the dirt and away and those are the ones that spin tight that's the way you you, you learned initially how to throw breaking balls so it's almost the opposite of that when you throw on backdoor pitches or some people call them backup pitches, but it's really about where you start it and where your alignment is that, that really impact on side to side, in and out kind of uh, control, east to west control of your breaking pitches as well as your fastball. I'll take these as the, the stats and research guy. A couple from it's a combo from at jboss underscore and from at bennyy underscore 25. What personal stat did you care most about when you played? And a follow-up to that being, what stat would you care about most now if you were a player? Uh, to me, it was always NH pitched. 
was workload. I thought that was a residual effect that could really impact giving your bullpen a rest, giving your manager a rest, knowing that you're going to get deeper into the games, you know, for the, for the majority of my career up until the end, I think I averaged seven innings to start. That was the one that I was most proud of. That's the one I think about. I still think it's important, probably even more important because there's fewer guys that can do that nowadays. Or if you've got a pitcher that can do that, even though it's kind of trending upward this year and a pitcher's, pitcher dominant environment now or run scoring's down a bit. We've, we've seen a few pitchers, few starting pitchers, especially the good ones getting a little deeper in the game. So that was it for me. That was, I wanted to get as deep into the game as I possibly could. Innings pitch was it. Everything else was kind of subjected to random variants. You know, how good's my defense behind me? How good's my run support? I was a big early adopter of pitch, pitchers one loss records or can be deceiving. And Keith Hernandez taught me that early on with the Mets. Your, your one loss record is more indicative of what type of team you play on. You play on a really good team, you're going to have a good one loss record. Even he knew that back in the 80s, and that was an early lesson for me. And I used it in arbitration cases as well. And one loss record's overrated. You know, I'm doing my job. I, I pitched as many innings as I could. I kept our team in the game. And what happens be, beyond that is out of my control. So, yes, innings pitch then, innings pitch now. All right. At R4CCS wants to know which pitch has revolutionized the game more in the past year? It is interesting to see the the ebbs and flows, you know, in the, the so-called spider tack era. It was four seamers up in the zone. We saw that with Garrett Cole coming over from Pittsburgh. Hey, your sinker's not that good. Maybe you should hold a cross seam and, you know, uh, maybe get a little help along the way, right? So a lot of pitchers were using a little help with the sticky stuff and, it's still kind of an issue today on what the baseball and rosin bags, but I digress. I think, you know, for me uh, now the two seamers coming back in play and what I, I talked to Aaron judge earlier this year. And if you, you, you're a pitcher that can feature both two seamer and four seamer, that is really wreaking havoc with hitters. They're trying to guess fastball in. If it's a right-handed pitcher against a right-handed batter, Aaron judge told me, I, I, I almost have to guess whether it's a two seamer or a four seamer. And that that little subtle nuance, that little dynamic of is it going to run in or is it going to stay straight and ride? And that is a big deal. So that combination of two seamer back into play and certainly the cutter off of that as well. We're seeing a lot of cutters back in play as well. And back to, you know, uh, you know Mariano Rivera. You know, how many relievers do we see that have, that have emulated Mariano Rivera? Kenley Jansen with his cutter for years. So, yes, um, to me, it's it's that interplay between the tunneling effect between two seamers and four seamers, and then the cutter off of that is really unique. So I, I they're kind of all fastballs, really. It's a cut fastball. A sinker is a fastball, and obviously a four seamer is what everybody knows as as a traditional fastball. But they're all in the genre of fastballs, and the the subtle nuances between those and the tunneling effect and the evaluation of the spin rates on those pitches really, to me, is interesting that pitchers are using to their advantage right now. When Aaron Judge is talking about almost trying to have to guess whether it's a four-seamer or a two-seamer, is he talking about guessing in a fastball count before the pitch even leaves the pitcher's hand? Or is there enough time for him to start guessing when that ball is leaving the pitcher's hand? Yeah, I, I, it's very hard to pick up the difference in rotation on two-seamer and four-seamer. Maybe you can a little bit. Uh, it's, it's a lot different than seeing spin, you know, like a slider spin or gyro spin. Maybe you can pick up that if you're a hitter about halfway to home plate. Fastballs are harder. But, yeah, you know this guy's coming inside. He's going to throw fastballs in. It's a right-handed pitcher against a right-handed batter. I know at some point in this at bat he's going to come in on me maybe a couple or three times. Now is it, okay, I'm going to go get that. Oh, it's a two-seamer, and it runs in off the plate and breaks my bat. Or I, I got to pull a foul, or, or it, it induces weak contact and gets, gets him to chase a pitch out of the strike zone, whereas the four-seamer stays on the plate, and maybe it stays up just a little bit more than, than the sinker or two-seamer would. So that guessing game, that recognition issue right there is really tricky for, for hitters uh, nowadays because the pitchers are generally uh, understanding the difference between two. and. You know, maybe early in the count, I'm going to run two seamers in and then late in the count, I'm going to finish with four seamers. So that's where the guessing game comes in terms of trying not just to recognize, but to kind of guess along and 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 and, and understand the, the patterns of a, of a certain pitcher and what he's trying to do. That's another thing. I think there's so much more information nowadays, not just information, but analysts that 
that spend four hours before every game analyzing every tendency of the hitter and the pitcher. You know, it's amazing that the prep that goes into it now, there's, there's four or five different analytics guys that are dedicated just to that. You know, that one little facet of, of breaking down every little detail of what the hitters and the pitchers tendencies are. It's so much more um, uh, involved now than, than obviously uh, it ever has been. Next question is from our pals over at Talking Yanks. Outside of winning and statistics, what similarities does Coney see between this year's Yankees rotation and the Yankees rotations that he was a part of? The overall consistency. Yes. I mean, if you think about the 90s Yankees, it, if you look at that rotation, it seems like year in and year out, everybody took a turn of being number one. You know, you could have you could have rolled the dice and say, OK, El Duque, you're going to start game one. Oh, Andy Pettit, you're going to start game one. Oh, uh, Boomer, David Wells. OK, you're going to be the game one pitcher in this series or even you throw in rocket after the Boomer area era. So, yes, it, you're starting to get that feel a little bit of it doesn't really matter who's on the mound. They're all kind of ace like quality starters. You know, Garrett Cole, we know what his pedigree is. Luis Severino was a top five pitcher before his Tommy John surgery and his injuries. He's kind of looking like he's back now. It, it really encouraging to see him start in and start out, kind of get his entire repertoire back. He's better than ever now, I think. His changeup is better than it's ever been. His combination of a slider cutter is better than it's ever been. Uh, Nestor Cortez, wow, he, he might start the all-star game if he keeps going right now. Uh, so, yes, and even Jamison Tyone, when you look at him, he's got ace-like quality to to his numbers right now. So there's there's not there's not a discernible, oh, this is our, you know, the back end of our rotation, number four, oh, this is our fifth starter guy. Uh, they roll them together, mix them up and, you know, throw them all out there. That That's kind of what it feels like with this rotation, and that's kind of what we had back in the 90s. So, yeah, that that's the similarities I see. It's like, hey, we play today, we win today because, because of the starting pitcher. That's where it started. You know, Mariano, uh, Mariano Duncan came up with that, coined that phrase. We play today, we win today. That That's it. You know, that that's that's the feeling you get in that clubhouse. And it all starts with because of the rotation and night in and night out. Whoever you run out there, you have tremendous confidence in. All right, we'll go through a, a Yankee stretch here with some questions. Um, at Goss Jim 358 wants to know, should Yankee fans be worried about the innings already logged by Nestor Cortez and Clay Holmes this year? Because it kind of seems like they're being used more than ever before. I would have confidence that the, the Yankees medical staff and really the entire organization is well aware of this stuff. They're tracking it. Uh, these things can be measured nowadays much more than ever before. Back in the day, overuse, to overuse that, that expression, um, I guess that's what you do when you're in your 50s, pushing 60 years old. You, <laughs> you use that expression a little more than you probably should. But it was all eye test back then. It was Mel Stottlemyre. And Joe Torrey saying, hey, how you feel? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, you know, you look okay. Uh, uh, now we're tracking everything. Release points. The medical data there is, is measurable. The spin rates are measurable. Are you dropping your arm? Is there a little downtick in your velocity? Is there downtick in your spin rate? Um, your release point was here in April and May, and now all of a sudden it's dropping down and to the right or to the left a little bit, which can be a precursor to fatigue. We know that fatigue can, is the one thing that can lead to injury. So there's more weapons. There's, there's, there's more data than ever before to measure these things, to monitor them. So, yes, as you're going along through the season, I feel pretty confident that, hey, Nestor, we're going to skip a start. Or Luis Severino, we're going to skip a start. And the overall depth of the organization comes into play. You can reach down in AAA and grab a guy and bring him up and have him start, whether that's going to be a Domingo Herman when he gets ready or who's next in line. Uh, who's lined up to, to give you some coverage in those spots uh, is really important in your organization. The Yankees are well-positioned in that regard. So yeah, I feel pretty confident the Yankees are going to monitor that and yes, give them breaks whenever you can here and there. And if you're playing well and the larger, the bigger lead you get in the division, that helps as well that you can, you can, uh, you can hold guys back here and there. So yeah, you should be worried about it to answer the question. But I feel good that the, that the team organizations in general and, and specifically the Yankees, have never been better prepared to monitor that situation. Cortez, 93 innings last year. He's up to 53 so far this season. I'm not really worried about Clay Holmes. It feels like it's much easier to, to manage the workload for a reliever. He threw 70 innings last year. He's on pace for the low 80s. But as you guys can have seen, it doesn't take long to get a guy back on track. You know, if a guy 
doesn't pitch for three days, all of a sudden the the pace is is much more back to normal. So that's something that uh, I feel like is it's going to be less of an issue, even if it's for someone like Holmes, who's so important to the team. And so efficient too, the way he yeah. fills up the strikes on. How many times have we seen him with nine, 10, 11, 12 pitch innings too? So no, no two innings are the same. And Holmes is not uh, foreign to this workload. When, when the Yankees acquired him last year, he was one of the most often used relievers in the game, even by Pittsburgh. So it's not like he's coming to a new organization. And even with all the new changes, the, the workload's increasing. This is something that's kind of normal to him, so to speak. And if you, and you mentioned the, the short innings, if you look at big league pitchers with at least 20 innings of work this year, he has the fewest pitches per inning. He's under 13. So Coney, you've mentioned before, uh, you know, high stress pitches, it's high leverage, but he's not really dealing with a lot of traffic on the bases and he's kind of just mowing through people. Yeah. Just uh, filling up the strikes on pitch after pitch. We've got one from at cheap gimmick. What pitch do you wish you could have added to your arsenal? Well, I would have loved to have a parachute changeup. you know, the, the changing of velocities, um, you know, that to me, that would have been it. I, I threw a splitter. I was, you know, when I wanted to change velocity, I, I threw more of a curveball. I tried to take some velocity off of my curveball, maybe get a little, uh, in a little more break to a little more vertical movement on it. Um, that, that, that was hard to do to get tight spinning curveballs and throw them slower. Uh, that's what I think is the secret sauce for Adam Wainwright, that he can throw a curveball, you know, in the low 70, 70 miles an hour, but still have a tight spinning get high RPMs on it and still have a pretty quick break on it. That, that, that's what makes him so effective. I would have loved, loved to have like a Pedro Martinez change up, you know, just, just, just kind of a, you know, the, the old expression is a, a lamp shade, right. Pulling down the shade that kind of almost like you could pull it, pull it back like a recoil on your change up that imparted spin on it, but also took velocity off of it. So that to me, that's, that's the magic formula. If you could still spin it, but yet throw it slowly, those are the ones that are so effective and so hard to recognize for hitters. So that would be it. The uh, pull the ripcord, parachute changeup, I, I wish I would have had. All right, we have time for a couple more. I want to get this one in because it comes all the way from Israel. Uh, this guy says it's at, at Mike T. Cohen. He said, David, I coach little guys first to third grade here in Israel, some of whom have never seen a real game before. One of the kids asked me if he could become a pitcher. And right now he throws a mean ephus if the hitter is nine feet tall. He wants to know, other than watching games, where would you get him started? Just with the love of it, you know, that it really starts in your heart. When you wake up and, you know, I remember going to sleep in my uniform, right? We've all heard those stories. Got a game tomorrow morning. I'm going to sleep in my uniform. That started at about seven, eight years old. That, that's where it starts is really the love, the desire, the motivation. If you don't have that, then it doesn't matter. You wake up in the morning. Hey, uh, nah, I'm going to throw, I'm going to play video games, you know, but no, I got my uniform on. I can't wait to get outside and go practice or play this game. That's kind of where it starts. It's in your heart. You know, you teach them the love of the game. And then secondly, it's, you know, what comes from that is just rep after rep. You know, maybe all of us have played sports, you know, or if you, those of us who have, you just remember, Hey, I'm, I'm out in the backyard or I'm on the field or my buddies are getting together and we're going to, we're going to play all day. And that, that's the only way you get better is rep after rep, more reps. You know, I remember my backyard shooting baskets all day long. Hey dad, I learned how to throw, shoot a jump shot. I jumped like two inches off the ground and then shoot it. Look, is that a jump shot, dad? That's a real jump shot like the pros. So that's where it starts right there is just the love, the desire and, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you think about? Uh, to me, that's the key. Got one from Sam Duchovny. What is the single greatest confidence boost you can have as a pitcher? Uh, to me, there, there was a lesson here. Uh, I, when I first went to the Mets and one, my, my, one of the first starts I had, my first major league start, I gave up 10 runs. I was facing the Houston Astros and it was on the heel. This is 1987. The Astros and the Mets had a little history there. They met in the, the LCS the year before, famous league championship series, a 16-inning game. Those of you who know the history of the Mets and the Astros. Well, the next year, I, I started my first major league game against the Astros and got blown out. And I threw some good pitches, some bad pitches. I balked a couple of times. It was a Murphy's Law. I think they, there was errors behind me. I had to pitch five innings because our bullpen was trashed. Davey Johnson left me out there. 
uh, out of necessity. By the time five innings were over, there were 10 runs on the board. I was completely embarrassed. It was a Tuesday night game. It was a limited schedule. So that game got a lot of play nationally. Mel Stoudemire came to, to see me on the mound in the middle of this. I had my hands on my head like this, like, oh, my God, what's happening to me? It was a, it was an awful scene. And I remember the next start, I went out and I was throwing some of the same pitches and guys were fouling them off or popping them up. And I was getting outs on the same exact pitches that I threw the previous start that uh, I gave up 10 runs on. And the light bulb went off on, on, in my head that, you know, it's, it's the old theory of you give up some hard hit contact, you change your whole approach. It's the expression of, I got chased out of the strike zone. I got worried. I got afraid of contact oh my God, I've got to be perfect. I'm not good enough to pitch up here unless I throw thread the needle and throw perfect pitches right to the corners that I can't, I can't win. And it's just the opposite. When you realize you throw a pitch right down the middle, as I evolved as a pitcher and a, and a hitter fouled it off, I go, okay, okay, that that's the break I needed. Now I'm going to get him out instead of, oh my God, I just made a mistake down the middle. And you know, I can't pitch like this. It's very psychological, very emotional. You know, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, but it is a very real thing that is a hard lesson for young pitchers to learn. And that is the lesson. You know what? You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to don't get don't get scared out of the strike zone because somebody made a good swing on you or somebody hit a big home run or somebody hit a, a, a scorching line drive off of you. The next hitter might just pop it up just just as well. So that's the moral to the story. All right, last one for me. And again, thank you all for sending your questions and they've been terrific. And I promise it's not going to be another 27 episodes before we do another mailbag. So keep sending them in. Uh, it is from at Psychoplasmics5. They say, I noticed that Yankees reliever Lucas Litke was talking to himself on the mound. Do you or guys that you know have a mantra on the mound or thoughts or phrases that you repeated to yourself to stay dialed in or calm, or even get pumped up? Well, yeah, I, I, it, can, it can vary start to start, but to me, it was always simplifying. I, to me, it was about a, a checklist that you had. And it, the more swing thoughts you had, the more mechanical thoughts you had in your mind at one point, the more jammed up you were, the more prone you were to get jammed up. It's hard to do any activity when you're thinking too much about it. What am I doing? Where are my hands? How's my stride? Am I landing properly? Is my alignment right? Certainly you have that checklist before the game and in the bullpen. And then when you're first warming up, you get all those out of the way. But when you're in the heat of the moment, you should reduce that to just one or two. And it's usually based on the feedback of the pitch. There's feedback on every pitch you throw. So what you were trying to do and what the outcome was tells you all you need to know. Uh, and mechanically, you know, oh, I either either I'm too quick or I'm too slow. If I'm a right-handed pitcher and I throw one in the dirt on the outside to the outside to a right-handed batter, then I'm too quick. My arm's out in front. And what's my adjustment? My adjustment's usually with my lower half. Just hang in there a little bit longer. Conversely, if I'm trying to throw a pitch down and away and I miss way up and in, how many times do you see that, right? I mean, pitcher's aiming down and away. The catcher's down and away. He threw it way up and in. It happens a lot. Okay, I was too quick. My arm had to rush to catch up. So where's my checkpoint there? What is it? Is there a checkpoint in rhythm or timing? Do I need to break my hands a little bit sooner? Whatever your checkpoint is, try to reduce it to one or two thoughts because anything more than that is going to jam yourself up mentally and emotionally on the mound. So that's the trick. No right away. Okay, I got to hold in a little longer or no, I got to speed it up. It's usually too fast or too slow. It's really that simple. I'm a little too fast in my delivery or a little too slow. You need to identify it quickly and make that quick adjustment. It's a great way to end the uh, mailbag portion of the show here we got some great questions from our listeners yeah a lot of them um and 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 we will do this again rather soon like we said we promise i know the first time we went about 30 episodes in between so this is fun maybe we'll do some voicemails as well to get your your voices on the show and you can you can drop a vm instead of a message on twitter um all right this week in pitching history james what do you have for us all right june 2nd 2010 12 years ago, Thursday, already been 12 years, Detroit at Cleveland, Tigers right-hander Armando Galarraga retires the first 26 batters he faces. He's one out away from a perfect game. Jason Donald hits a grounder to first baseman Miguel Cabrera, who throws to Galarraga, covering first in time. Umpire Jim Joyce just misses the call, says he's safe. 
No one could believe it. Galarraga's smile on the mound. He gets the next batter, Trevor Crow, for a one-hit shutout. But it wasn't a perfect game. Joyce, in tears afterwards, knowing that he missed the call, he felt so bad, a well-respected 30-year career. And it's, you know, on the one hand, it's too bad that, you know, he goes down in history as that. But then you see the way that he handled it and the way that Galarraga handled it. And then the next day, the lineup card exchange was Galarraga himself going out, uh, representing the Tigers and the moment that he had with Joyce. Um, just really a great moment and a great uh, example of, um, of good sportsmanship. And it just goes to show you need, you need a little luck to get that no hitter or the perfect game. Random variance of an umpire call, right? I mean, factor that in. I've talked to a lot of umpires about that, and I know Jim Joyce very well, and I'm glad you brought that up, James. It's a great example of sportsmanship. If you think umpires don't care about whether they get it right or wrong, you are dead wrong. They do. They take a lot of pride in their work universally. Every umpire I've talked to over the years remembers the calls they missed, just like players, just like pitchers remember games they blew or relievers remember games, you know, saves they blew or hitters, you know, on down the line, they do care, you know, even though sometimes you wonder, right? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get on umpires. You know, they, hey, how did you miss that call? You're terrible. You're blind, whatever. All, all the, all the uh, cliches that you hear about umpires, they care. They really do. Jim Joyce cared. He showed it. It's a great example, James. And uh, what a great guy too. Jim Joyce, really, really great guy. You know, Galarraga too handled that very well. A lot of class all the way around. One of the best, best moments I think uh, in recent history that you've seen interaction between player and umpire yeah it was something that i mean it was very much a negative because you want this guy who did it you want him to get the perfect game but it it almost became like a really nice thing too just because of the way the two of them handled it yeah this is the best outcome out of a crummy situation um all right guys three up three down we give some love to a pitcher that we're going to be watching over the next week or someone who did something incredible or continues to do something incredible. Um, I, for the first time, I'm going to go in a, in a different way here. Before I do, briefly give some praise to Tony Gonsolin of the Dodgers because he's kind of stabilized this rotation in L.A. with Heaney and, and Kershaw on the I.L. He's been really valuable after kind of like fighting for a spot on uh, in the rotation in spring training, it was pretty cloudy where his status was on that pitching staff, and he has been remarkable for the Dodgers. But I'm not going there. I just I could go longer with Gonsolin. But watching the games Friday night, you see Justin Verlander pitching for the Astros in Seattle against the Mariners, and Verlander just did not have it on Friday. He obviously looked incredible heading into that start for the season, was, was a consensus Cy Young Award winner if you're going to give it to anybody at the – quarter mark here of the season on that night in Seattle Verlander gives up four home runs 10 hits total you could visibly see his slider wasn't his slider didn't have the command the feel for his pitch but as I'm watching in like the fifth and the sixth innings I'm wondering why on earth is Justin Verlander still in the game if you think about okay the damage has already been done his team's down four or five runs and he's creeping up toward 100 pitch count. I think he threw 99 pitches. He was taken out with 99 pitches. So he's working hard in low-level spots, driving up that pitch count during a game in late May. You know, this isn't September where the Astros are trying to hold off Seattle for the division. So as good as he's been, he's still working hard in low-level spots. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. So for three up, three down here, I'm thinking, all right, David, I need to ask you here. Are you more like surprised that Verlander was kind of tattooed by the Mariners, giving up all those home runs, those hits, or that Houston kept him in during essentially a clunker in the month of May? It's a great point and something that pitchers and managers and pitching coaches have gone through forever. You know, the expression is you hung me out to dry. You know, I'm having a great year and you, you had me suck up 10 earned runs or whatever. You know, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you come get me? Well, you have to be privy to all the information in, the, in that dugout. You know, Dusty Baker's old school manager. I mean, he's interacting with, with Verlander throughout that game. Maybe the bullpen was down or maybe they, you know, who knows? Maybe they, they needed a break. They needed Verlander to push it a little further to give their bullpen a break. But it is a valid point coming off of Tommy John surgery, his age. He had such great numbers going into that game. It was a clearly a, 
you know, an, an equalizer or aggression to the mean, so to speak, for Verlander. He was due, as Joan Cohn used to say, he was due for some earned runs. He got him. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of with you that that is the that that's the art to managing pitchers, especially pitchers um, that that are so valuable and that are, have the injury history that Verlander does. Uh, that that's boy, do I protect him? Is he okay? He says he wants to keep pushing. You kind of got to be in that dugout. But I always appreciate a manager who protected me. You know, the, hey, you're having a great year. This isn't your day. Let, let me protect you a little bit and get you out of there. And uh, yes, that that can be appreciated. And conversely, I can be really divisive if you're a starter. I've seen that with starting pitchers. You get really pissed off at their managers because they were hung out to dry, to to suck up extra extra earned runs and get beaten up on nights that they just didn't have it going. Uh, yeah, it, it impacts your arbitration it impacts your compensation, you know, at the end of the year, it impacts a lot of things, um, including your ego along the way. So yeah, the, the, you gotta be in there to know what the decision-making process was, but at the same time, it's a valid point check and a real art to, uh, you know, how do you protect your pitching staff, especially your veteran guys? All right, James, who do you have for us? Three up, three down. Shohei Otani. Let's not take him for granted. I know he gave up five runs against the Blue Jays last Thursday, but he, he's doing it again. He is not at the same level as last year's MVP year, which he was basically better than Matt Olson in OPS plus, and he was better than Garrett Cole in ERA plus last year. But OPS plus down from 158 to 129, still great. ERA plus down from 139 to 112, still solidly above average. He is a marvel. I don't think I still, even though he's you know maybe the most hyped up guy in MLB right now, I still think you can't talk enough about him. What he's doing is absolutely incredible. And I can't wait to see him in the Bronx this week as the Angels come to Yankee Stadium. It should be a good series with two contending teams, but I will be focusing on Shohei, hoping he has a little bit of a better, we get to see more of him on the mound on Thursday than last year's first inning knockout. I remember that game so well. It was probably the hottest day of the year, too. It seemed like it was like 110 heat index when Shohei Otani started at Yankee Stadium last year. He also was batting leadoff. So as a visitor, visiting pitcher, you got to warm up in the bullpen in that heat and then get to the dugout in time to put your helmet on to bat leadoff. So, yeah, that, I was kind of questioning that. Why didn't they bat him third? That would be the time to give him a little bit of a break after he warmed up in this heat. I remember watching him in the dugout before he batted. He was in front of the air conditioner. The look on his face, he was melting. And he was just, the air was blowing on his face before that first at bat after he warmed up in the bullpen before the game. So that was probably the highest degree of difficulty I've ever seen a starting pitcher have to go through. Not only just because of the heat, but he had to bat leadoff after, after in the visiting pitcher, having to warm up quickly, get, get your stuff ready, and then get in there to, to, to lead off the game. Yeah, if you blinked, you missed that start from Shohei Otani I remember such a letdown it was it was one of the you know we, we all work at the state at Yankee Stadium that I think stands out and it's so vivid to all of us because everyone just like we are right now anticipating the Angels and the Yankees going at it this week we were all jazzed up and, and ready to go to watch Otani on the mound. and if you went to the bathroom uh, right before Otani took the mound in that bottom of the first you you probably missed it so uh, yeah, he's, he's he's larger than life he yeah. really is um, we'll go back to that, the angels and the Yankees gearing up for a series this week. Cause there are a couple of other good series, but David, what, what do you, or who do you have? I should say for three up three down this week. Well, you know, we, we talked about the Miami, uh, Marlins, you know, and their pitchy staff, they've had a lot of young pitchers that have come along over the, over recent years, but one guy you've seen, maybe you've heard of, obviously you've heard of him if you're into, if you're into pitching in the game, but Sandy Alcantara coming off of a 14 strikeout game really to me is coming into his own. And, uh, you know, if you think about him last year, he had a nice year in 2021, he had a three one nine ERA and 33 starts this year already in 10 games started. He's got a two O ERA two flat and 67 and two thirds innings. We talked about innings pitch. He's averaging do the math there 10 starts and 67.2 innings pitch. He's a little shy of seven innings on average, really good. Um, He's already accumulated 2.2 war on the season here at the, as James said, almost a 30% mark. He's got a bust out year coming. He's on a pace to have a monster year, a six or seven war season, maybe more. He might get up in that 
you know, Cy Young award candidate candidacy. You know, he's, he's one to watch right now. Electric stuff. He's always been high velocity movement sinkers. His slider is getting better. He's figuring out how to miss bats more coming off a 14 strikeout game. Watch out for Sandy Alcantara. He's, he's on to bigger and better things. He's, he's a pitcher to watch right now. Between the lockout ending and the season starting when everyone had kind of had to give their season previews and predictions, I felt like Sandy Alcantara was the trendy pick within the industry on winning the Cy Young Award winner. And for that reason, I was over, I overthought it. And I know on here, I picked Brandon Woodruff, who's right now on the, you know, the injury list and wish him a, a speedy recovery, get back quickly only to, you know, make me look smarter at the very least. But Sandy Alcantara was that guy who I felt like a lot of people were picking. Yeah. I overthought that one. It's, you know, it's pretty simple. He's, he's coming into his own over the last two years and obviously he's figured it out. It's, it's a treat to watch him every fifth day. If you are a fan of pitching here, but we talked about the the angels and the Yankees briefly touched on, on Woodruff, the brewers. Those are teams who are in some interesting series this week. So between the Yankees and the Angels going at it, you have the Padres and the Brewers going at it in Milwaukee, David, and you also have the Mets and the Dodgers battling out in Los Angeles. If you want to pick one series, if you want to quickly gloss over the three of those series, feel free to do whatever you want. But what should fans be paying close attention to when you focus on the pitching for those series? Uh, we've talked about it. It's, it's new. It feels like a New York LA kind of year. This is a bi-coastal year, right? The battle for LA, the battle for New York, both teams are good. It's great for the game. Um, you know, I am with James though. Any, anywhere Shohei Otani goes, I'm watching, you know, but the, the Mets, if the Mets had, you know, a matchup of Kershaw against DeGrom, that kind of marquee matchup that potentially is going to happen later in the year, then I'd say, wow, that's, that's must see TV. Uh, but the, yeah, the Mets and Dodgers have their own history. Uh, without a doubt. So that's going to be interesting. The Dodgers. Um, wow. What a team, you know, maybe the most complete team in the big leagues right now, top to bottom, but yeah, it kind of gets, you get that feeling that maybe this is the year it's uh, Mets and Dodgers in a league championship series. Again, maybe Yankees and, and Dodgers in the world series, thinking back to Bob Welsh and Reggie Jackson back to the late seventies and all the drama there. Uh, wow. I remember pitching at Dodger stadium back in the day. Here I am back in the day again, walking off the mound. There's Frank Sinatra over the dugout. I mean, the stars will be out. That's, that's what you get. You get the marquee matchups, New York, LA, everybody will be there. That's when you start seeing the current superstars will be right there in the front row or right above the dugout at Dodger stadium or at Yankee stadium, or really at City Field for that matter. It, that that's when, that's when, <clears throat> that's when you see them. And that that's, those are the games that bring those kind of stars out. You mentioned the Brewers Padres series and it's still a few days out. So we don't have all the pitching matchups lined up, but the way things are looking right now, looks like Friday is lined up for Corbin Burns against Joe Musgrove. That is a circle of the calendar pitching matchup. Appointment viewing right there on your Friday night. There it is. Plans have been made. So hopefully that, that stays on track there, David, I think, um, I think we need Dan Rourke to come in with, a, uh, a back in the day bumper for every time that you, you say the phrase, and I don't know what it'll be, maybe like a, you know, an old man groaning with like back pain or something like that, yeah. just to deter you from saying yeah. back in the day. Because, back in the day. Go take a shot, shot yeah. of whiskey, drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, this has been fun this week and it's going to do it for this episode. Big thanks as always to Dan Rourke, our incredible producer. A uh, quick reminder next week, uh, well, th this show is obviously dropping on a Tuesday. New episodes of this show usually drop each and every Tuesday. Next week, it's going to drop on Wednesday. David's coming back from Chicago. I'm going to be uh, coming back from Australia, of all places. But next week, it'll be dropping on Wednesday. So look out for that. Please rate, review, subscribe. It is the best way that you could support the show here as we wrap it up. Telling the Slab Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.